There is no phrase in the English language I hate more than what's your research about. If you find yourself in a circle with graduate students, you may have also been a victim to this horrible phrase. Once this question gets asked, you have to endure a lengthy monologue about gene 34726A or recombinant cacao 2 cells or isothermocalimetry. In my opinion, that's where scientists lose listeners. My name is Louis Colorotolo, and I'm currently procrastinating during my PhD at the University of Guelph Food Science Department. And to avoid researching, but still looking productive, I sit down with current slash recent graduate students in the science fields to have a casual, candid conversation about what they study. Taking away the long words, unnecessary definitions, and technical talk, we discuss how our studies come into play in the real world. Today, I'm talking with Michael Hickey, and honestly, I have to say that Michael is one of my favorite people. He is the kind of guy that you will find in a classroom probably like 30 minutes before an 8 a.m. lecture, drinking coffee out of an oversized thermos and reading the Wall Street Journal, print edition. Michael is a, somewhat of a spy. His subject, germs that are one millionth of a meter long, or one thousandth of a millimeter. We are going to talk about the good versus bad bacteria, how we spy on these little critters, and what the future of imaging them might look like. He's recently graduated Doctor of Food Science and is just beginning his career. And together, we don't know everything. And that's why you're listening to We Know Some Stuff. Hi, Michael. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Lewis. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I am doing great over here. Could you do me a favor and walk us through your educational history? Sure. I started out with my undergraduate studies in Delaware. I was studying biology at Wesley College years ago now. Uh, about halfway through, I discovered food science and transferred over to a school that had more infrastructure there at uh, Delaware State University. And there I earned a bachelor's degree in food and nutritional sciences. I went on to get a master's from that same school in uh, food science and biotechnology. And then I ended up at the University of Massachusetts studying food science where you and I got to spend a lot of time together. So that's the background. I graduated not too long ago and now I'm in Philadelphia uh, as an analytical scientist for Spark Therapeutics and I'm working with viruses. Wow. All right. You you have been in school, it sounds like, more or less your entire life. Yeah, absolutely. Do, that's do what it. they say. Stay in school. Stay in school. Stay in school, kids, right? You know what? That's that's a message that I don't think we're pushing enough. I, I don't believe that when they told us that when we were younger, they meant stay in school for nine years. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm in the 23rd school, grade now, I think. Uh, Great. You know what? I, I do that. I, I make that statement every year. I'm like, I am starting my, I think it's like, oh, this is my 25th first day of school over here. It's really sad. I don't, I don't want to talk about it. Can we change the topic? Absolutely. Okay. So Michael, you know a lot about really incredibly tiny things. You are going to tell us today all about bacteria how we see them, what they mean for us, what is a good bacteria, what is a bad bacteria, and why we should even care about these incredibly small little creatures. Yeah, it is so funny. We have more bacteria in our bodies than cells that belong to us. Okay. So what, first of all, back up, 
we have more bacteria in us than human cells. Uh, this is this is a statistic that I've heard many times. Yeah, I think there's some truth to it. And they're around us all the time. These are our neighbors. These are part of our ecosystem and arguably are the uh, top of the food chain. So we have to watch them just as much as they watch us. I love this. So they're the top of the food chain. What do you mean by that? Well, when we pass on, uh, if we're not preserved, we're broken down and digested by microorganisms. That's just the way it works. I love it. I love it. That's a very circle of life. Yeah. You know, Mufasa told us that, like, you know, the lions become the grass. Well, we just become food for bacteria. That's right. We are the vehicle and we feed them all day long. Oh, God, I feel I feel a little used. <laughs> it's all about being so, one with Earth, Lewis. Yeah, one. that's right. You know what? I, Everything's I need to connected. try to develop oneness a little bit more. I, I'll work on that. Thank you. Thank you for that advice. Uh, so we we think about bacteria you know and i i was questioning myself the other day i always remember hearing the term germ growing up you got to wash your hands to get rid of germs and we always think of germs as bacteria or maybe viruses could be a germ and they're bad right so we're washing our hands you know 20 minutes hot water with soap or not 20 minutes 20 seconds with hot water and soap and we're trying to get rid of bad bacteria so that we don't get sick. But then you're also telling me that there is good bacteria out there. That's right. And it's 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 an honestly, it's a good habit to, to teach children to wash their hands and to worry about germs. That's a, that's a healthy habit and a healthy perspective. But in reality, as you advance in the sciences, you recognize that there's so much good bacteria and other microorganisms can bring. Uh, for example, the, the company that I'm working with right now, they utilize adeno-associated viruses, uh, AAV, as a way to trans, uh, transfer healthy genes into patients who have deficient genes. For example, even bringing sight to people who are genetically blind. And that was all possible through viruses. So there's so much good that can come from microorganisms, and we're just now starting to scratch the surface uh, into how well we can manage the bacteria communities within our own bodies and how they're influenced by the foods that we eat and how they uh, affect our health. And, uh, you know, there's so many probiotic products on the market right now that are still sort of being stress tested and still uh, a lot of gastroenterologists uh, are suspicious of their efficacy. And, and, and we really are a chapter one of that book, but there's so much good that can come from them. Uh, I myself love to drink beer and, you know, microorganisms are used for those sort of fermentation uh, products. And at the same time, though, they have so many opportunities to bring us harm and they need to be surveilled and kept in check. All right. So that that is honestly so much good information all in there. We 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 know that these these bacteria, these viruses, they can do a whole host of different things. I had no idea. And this is the first time I remember hearing of this, that they're your your company's using viruses to pass on genes to people to kind of change our genes a little bit so we can um, confer sort of a more or less like abilities to other people. You're saying like a restoring vision, things like that. Yeah, this is incredible work. And when you watch the patients who experience this for the first time, it's so moving. And oh, those videos online, like when they put glasses on a kid, just like where they put the oh, God, that those videos that I, I don't think you can get more gold 
on the internet than those videos right there. Yeah, it really gets to your soul. And uh, all of that is possible through viral vectors, microorganisms. And, and we learned so much from them, even gene editing technologies like the CRISPR uh, systems that are being publicized in so many ways came from bacteria. There's, there's a lot of a magic and, and miracle in microbes. Yeah, so, so I, I imagine that maybe anyone who's listening has possibly come across the word CRISPR um, in their life. Um, and if you haven't, that's perfectly fine, because I'm going to say right here on the radio, I kind of barely understand it. But, uh, uh, Michael, could you give us the most lay explanation of CRISPR possible? Sure. So when, when we break down life to its simplest components, we are the products of uh, genetic material. A, T, G, C. These are called nucleotides, and they make up all of us. And so uh, these, these gene editing systems, these Cas9 proteins or enzymes, and uh, the, the whole variety of gene editing systems that you'll see in that, in that area, they basically have a sequence-specific potential to find uh, certain areas of DNA and make specific changes uh, within cells. And so... It, it's very difficult to achieve in a fully grown person, but when you have embryos or uh, tissues and, and test tubes and more controlled settings, you can, you can do some really profound things. So we, we kind of probably learned about genes in high school and middle school and things like that. We learned about these genes as, you know, the things that give you blonde hair, uh, the things that give you blue eyes. So all of this is just like some genetic coding. It's like a sort of kind of a program within us that says, all right, this is the code. This is what happens when we execute the code. So you're saying that in, in a test tube and not so much in a fully grown human being, we can sort of snip that code. We can insert what we like, get rid of what we don't want. Definitely. It's all interchangeable um, to the extent that it's localized to wherever you're exposed to to these types of technologies, but at the same time, it's it's for for the layperson, it's a good way uh, a good way to think about it would be everyone has a license plate on their car, all of our homes have an address, uh, coordinates, longitude, latitude. All of us have our genetic uh, composition, and so we sort of utilize that in in the food sciences, especially to to say. Well, if we're targeting salmonella, if we're targeting listeria or E. coli, we can say, what is their genetic footprint? And let's let's find it. Yeah. All right. That, I, that's a super uh, good sort of uh, way to think about it. I love it. I love it. So you were talking about how you love beer and they use microorganisms to make beer. I think um, a lot of products that we eat um, have microorganisms in them that are, are for the benefit off the top of my head. We got yogurt, we got breads, um, and one mutual interest that we definitely share is our love of coffee. Definitely. Definitely. Definitely our love of coffee. That goes through a fermentation step of its own. You know, chocolate does too. Well, you know, everything we're eating, at least the good stuff, in my opinion, is going to do that. So, so in beer, uh, what what is this microorganism doing in beer? Right, so uh, basically we would be dealing mostly with yeast and uh, converting sugars to, uh, let's say, fancy acidic molecules that help to produce CO2 and ultimately ethanol. And so you, yeah, yeah you mix that fun uh, chemistry with some fun flavors, whether you like the the fruits or the 
the barley's and the wheat, whatever you like. What 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 are your favorite? What's your favorite beer? Uh yeah, I, I we've got a we've got a brewery down here in Delaware, Dogfish Head Brewery. Oh, Dogfish Head, of course, of course. When I went to school down there, we used to go to Dogfish Head all the time. So I don't know their secret sauce, but I know that you can have a lot of fun with it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I have, I've always been more of a stout person myself. I don't I don't really care for like the IPAs and the high acidity ones. Um, but that is all how they make the IPA versus the stout versus the ale and the lager. Da 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 da. All of that has to do with like little cocktails of bacteria. That's right, and there's there's even a trend in those those microbreweries um, where they try to make beer that's called sour beer, and they intentionally are are playing God and adding different types of bacteria as much as possible to sour their beer. And it's, uh, it's, Oh yeah. A bit different. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I do yeah. enjoy sour. Super interesting stuff. So, okay. We got the bad bacteria that are going to kill us. We got the good bacteria that are giving us things that we'd love to eat. But what I am curious about is we can't just assume there's bacteria. We can't just say like, Oh yeah, there's like seven bacteria in my hand right now it's most likely not true so you look a lot into visualizing bacteria and first of all start us off with why do we want to see bacteria just to sort of springboard off of the example you laid out there it's funny how sometimes you can have more bacteria on your hands after you wash your hands than before what? There's going to be bacteria that's in our drinking water, and perhaps your hands are pretty sterile right now from your uh, your hand sanitizer. I don't know, but bacteria are all around us at, at all times, and and we need to uh, sort of be on guard against you know their invasion of our of our bodies. And how do they get into our bodies? Mostly through food or you know, touching our faces and things like that. And so if we can't see them, we, we are forced, Lewis, to take the bacteria from their home, from our food, and spy on them with a microscope or grow them in a lab. And every technology that even the experts in the field are working with, including the genetic technologies that are the gold standard, is pulling bacteria out of their original environment and studying them in a lab. But that's, that's really not the ideal case, right? If we want to study wildlife we go out into the wild we we have a very difficult time seeing microorganisms on their terms we we have to find a way to see them on ours and that's where a lot of my research has been focused i love how you put that that is amazing we we can't really do a lot of field studies because we need a lot of fancy equipment in order to see them because you know you look at your counter there could be a million bacteria just on this one dime sized area of your counter but since they're so small, they're more or less invisible to the naked eye. So we need to do a lot of processing steps and mixing. We need to help them grow so that they can get to larger numbers. And then we gotta use fancy technology to even see them. So what role do you play in all of that? I've, I've, done, I've done it all top to bottom. I've tried to grow bacteria in a lab and you do this on basically yellow plates. These are called agar plates mm -hmm. for any of the of the listeners, and uh, you count you can count them. They they we actually we actively grow the germs intentionally. Um, another way is to uh, just pull out their genetic material and make so many thousands of millions of copies that we can actually count the 
genetic material that we pulled out of our sample, whether that's a water sample, a soil sample, or a food. And uh, finally, what we've been working on at, at the University of Massachusetts uh, with Lilia is trying to find ways to see, uh, similar to the way we study weather with these these rainbow-colored heat maps of sorts, we're trying to spy on bacteria communities, you know, above the centimeter scale, even the inch scale, uh, rather than the micro scale, which is something we can't seem to fathom. Um, even even the president right now calling the uh, novel coronavirus an invisible enemy. Uh, you know, it, we we need to find ways to see it, and so the role I play in it is is trying to find ways to slap that. Uh, ankle bracelet onto microorganisms and see where they're going and why. Yeah, so we're, so we're spying on them. Absolutely. That's what we're doing. We are trying to kind of track what they're doing, see how many there are of them. And uh, unfortunately, we have to do a lot of work in order to do that. Now, one piece of technology that I think is super interesting, but also really confusing that you worked a lot with was uh, something called ramen, which is more or less using the vibrations that bacteria give off in order to see them. Yeah, so this is an incredible technology um, that hasn't really gotten enough attention because Raman spectroscopy has traditionally been uh, very difficult to work with. Essentially what you're doing is, if you're in a room with white light, you're experiencing uh, wavelengths of green light, red light, blue light, and and with a laser, you're not dealing with different wavelengths of light. You're dealing with one uniform uh, wavelength, which is near the infrared range. And so when this strikes a material, any, any piece of matter, it's, it's going to, at a very small percentage, transfer some of its energy and cause those molecules to vibrate. We have probably heard at some point, you know, when you turn on a light, not all of the energy that you're using goes to light. That bulb warms up a little bit. So it's sort of like this process where we're striking the, the matter, the bacteria, with light, and they're giving off another different form of energy, which is these vibrations. And based on the way those molecules dance around from that excitation, it's going to shift some of the wavelengths in that laser. And we simply measure the change in light, light wavelength after it's collided with our surface material, in this case, bacteria. And so it's very challenging to, to receive a Raman signal. So most people go and they deal with infrared spectroscopy, which is a little bit easier to work with. But people like uh, Dr. Lilyhud at the University of Massachusetts are finding nanostructures, specifically gold or silver or platinum, at, at the nanoscale, they actually cause an electron oscillation that enhances the Raman signal. So basically what I'm saying is in the presence of bacteria and nanoparticles, suddenly now we're getting extreme shifts in light uh, wavelength just by striking um, you know, bacteria with, with a laser beam. And suddenly now if you do this several hundred thousand times, which doesn't actually take very long with these new technologies, we can image larger surface areas and actually see, uh, as I did in my dissertation, how many bacteria are on a peanut or on a cantaloupe and, and, and not just uh, think about it in theory, but actually visibly see it through a microscope. So 
what you're saying is that by sort of collecting all of these vibrations that we've now enhanced, we made these uh, this signal so much bigger than it was before, collecting all of these, we could sort of maybe, would you say, draw a picture of what's happening? Yes, you could definitely draw a picture of what's happening. And uh, a lot of the alternative technologies that you'll you'll see in that area are fluorescent microscopy, for example, tagging different bacteria with green fluorescence or red fluorescence. Uh, in this case, we can actually tag or code bacteria cells with different markers. And, and we can have the computer recognize if you, if you receive this signal, it's E. coli. If you receive this other signal, it's a bacillus, uh, excuse me, a cetobacter or something like that. Just try to diversify what it is that we're looking at. If we wanted to draw a picture, yeah, and I, and I did do that with live and dead bacteria populations that I had mixed together to see if if we could see the difference between cells that were intact or cells that were destroyed, and it's all possible. There's a lot of promising uh, research going on there. So that's a, that's actually really interesting. You have observed the fact that sometimes there's alive bacteria and sometimes there's dead bacteria. And now for the most part, and not, not entirely, but for the most part, that dead bacteria really can't harm us, but it still exists. So are there methods out there that you could potentially mistake dead for alive? Definitely. That's one of the things that uh, people dealing... The, the gold standard for the industry is to use something called the polymerase chain reaction to study microorganisms. And this, again, is based on the genetic material that you're dealing with. Well, if you have a living um, salmonella cell, it's going to contain the same DNA that a dead salmonella cell contains. So if a cell is, is in fact, inactive or, or dead and the DNA is preserved in your, in your sample, you're going to get a false positive signal. And so there are workarounds there, um, but each time you try to add something new to uh, discriminate between live or dead cells, for example, uh, you can lose a little bit of precision in, in your in your analysis. So it's it's not a perfect system. Yeah. So so right there off the bat is that you know we have been doing this for so many years. At this point, they've been studying this stuff in, you know, the early 1900s. I mean, gosh, in France in the 1700s, they were looking at bacteria. Um, but it's still not perfect. We still have, like, a long way to go before we can be entirely and exactly sure of how much bacteria is on anything. And if that bacteria is actually the ones that will get us sick, the ones that are good for us, whether they're alive, whether they're dead, uh, whether they're even alive but can't hurt us or dead but still can hurt us a lot of unknowns in this isn't there there is and i think the the typical listener to this uh, discussion is is able to think about the traditional good versus bad argument but i'll add a little bit more depth to that by by adding you know think about the crops that farmers grow out in their fields uh you know the microorganisms that are in their soil um of course, can end up in their in their foods that cause us illness. But at the same time, they they have a lot of input in the biochemistry that's happening out in the environment. And if if those circumstances are just right, a farmer could have a really good crop yield and wonder, wow, I wonder why it's been such a good year. The answer just might be the the natural microorganisms out in the environment. So that's why food science is such a special field. Already, we've talked about physics, we've talked about chemistry, we've talked about biology. 
and now we're into environmental science. It's just a, a versatile topic. Yeah, absolutely. We all eat. I haven't met anyone out there that hasn't eaten yet. So um, I always huh. say that uh, being in food science is very good job security because people aren't going to stop eating anytime too soon. Um, but it, and it's really a lot of mystery out in the world. How can we make things better? How can we make things safer? Um, and you play a very important role in making sure that we know what bacteria we have. Yes, and I know a lot of companies are interested in this as well because, uh, you know, whether you're a chemical company that's selling a, a fertilizer or a pesticide to, to a farmer, um, you know, on the inside, you want to know how am I impacting the environment? Is this something that's going to affect wildlife? Is this something that's going to affect the microbial communities within the the consumer? Um, and you know, where are they coming from? Is is this something that that a simple weather storm that causes a flood on the side of a farm is this is this where an outbreak is going to take place? You know, we have to find measures to to sort of preeminently see where we're vulnerable as as a community and as a country and as a as a world so these technologies you like to think in as as a sort of a way of keeping peace of mind you want to say that we have all the bases covered but there's so much work to be done so this surveillance is kind of preventative in its own sense i guess that's what surveillance is you're you really want to catch things before they happen rather than it being too late and trying to say like, oh, well, this is what happened. And that's where we would go if we had that magic wand, Lewis, but we don't have it. And and so what we at least want to do is emulate in, in a controlled setting, whether it's a greenhouse, a lab, or a, a specialized plot out in the field, we'd like to at least emulate certain circumstances and see with our own eyes how the the food and beverage supply chains are going to be impacted by certain scenarios and we need to be able to role play those uh, but that does require some more advanced technologies uh, there is a lot out there that we still don't know a lot we want to figure out and um, since science is moving at such a fast pace so much is being discovered every day so much is being invented how can we really apply these things to every field food environment safety um, and, and really come together to make uh, the most efficient um, things for the public good. So you know something about science being used for the public good. What can you tell us? Right. So it's one thing to go to, uh, go to graduate school with the intention of increasing the public good. It's another thing to go to graduate school saying, I want to make the best tasting pizza ever. I want to make the best mm -hmm. tasting cake ever. I want to make the most profitable product. You know, it's very difficult to get federal funding with that profiteering mindset. So graduate schools and, and the research therein is typically uh, focused on the public good in as much as is possible so that we can achieve the funding that we need to, to put students in, into a classroom and into a laboratory with the technologies that they're going to need to be successful. So yeah, a lot of this work is, is definitely focused on the public. It, it needs to be something that enhances uh, the circumstances of society. And if it's not doing that, it's typically a private uh, collaboration between a business and uh, a faculty person in a university setting. Uh, otherwise, it's done as private research within, um, you know, a firm in, in the industry. Uh, so that's why, yeah, most of the time you're going to see in the university setting uh, a focus on the public. Yeah, and, and science is expensive. 
Science is very expensive. So where does that money come from? Exactly right. And that money is going to come from the taxpayer and that taxpayer needs to benefit from that investment. And so uh, I think the consensus that at one point there was discussion in, in, uh, in the federal government that is this responsible to take taxpayer money and put it into graduate school and graduate research? And the answer was, ultimately, yeah, we can't stunt the the consciousness of our people. We have to keep uh, that carrot on the stick that we're trying to advance technology in a way that can be profitable, but also uh, enhance uh, the consciousness of our of our people. I think uh, a key word we're starting to get toward is scale. I, I think especially with microorganisms we tend to get at such a small scale lewis we're at the the micrometer scale that's unfathomably small for most people and so now what we need to do is is go and start to see things um you know at that at that centimeter inch foot scale that that the everyday person is seeing in their kitchen and 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 finally connect with with those microorganisms that are almost fantasy to to, to most people and so that, that's where the public dollars are going, trying to bring something that's out of sight right into sight. Yeah, and I think this all kind of ties back to that invisible enemy kind of concept. Yeah. Is that uh, most people, they don't even realize what is going on. I, for one, can't see bacteria with uh, my naked eye. And in fact, I can't actually see much with my naked eye. I need a lot of prescription in order to see anything. But uh, raising the awareness of the public is certainly one thing. And, and there's a lot of ways we can raise awareness. Listening to this radio show right now is raising awareness. But then there is the transformation of that awareness into action. So uh, taxpayers pay a lot of money. Um, and a little sliver of that ends up going to graduate schools in order to fund this kind of stuff. Um, so do you have any predictions of like how things will shape up in the future? Like, what are you thinking will come out of all of this funding in the next 10 or 20 years? Uh, it seems it seems to be unanimous that all of this work needs to lead toward digitalization and mm -hmm. traceability. Uh, it needs to lead to something that's compatible with with robotics. When you go out onto the everyday farm, people would be surprised to really visualize what the farm to fork process looks like. Mm -hmm. This is not a year 3000 super sophisticated computer system that's processing all your food the way that the internet might make it sound. These are everyday people, they're putting their foot to the pavement and they're going out in the fields and they're growing the components uh, of of our food that that really is what builds our life and it's it's an old-fashioned process, Lewis. There's a lot of uh, natural uh, exposures to to the ecosystems that surround our everyday life. This is stuff that's outside. Just some people are are actually grossed out to find, hey, there's a bug in my lettuce. <laughs> they, they forget that this grows outside. <laughs> these these yeah, plants right? are vulnerable to, just like your home might have a spider, your food comes from the ground. And so we are, as, as, a, as a food and beverages industry, we are lagging far behind others in terms of technology and digitalization, but that's where everything is headed, trying to put a barcode on, on absolutely every component that they can, increase the traceability and transparency from the farm to fork so the consumer understands exactly what they're eating. Yeah, a few weeks ago, I spoke with, um... Uh, a former colleague on, on the show about artificial intelligence in farming. 
And he, you know, mused about all of these different things where uh, eventually a computer could see if it's a weed or if it is a plant and it could pluck the weed or it could water the plant. Um, so using all of these technologies, we're not only making it a more efficient uh, system, but we're also making a safer system, aren't we? We are, and it, it really does change the, the whole mindset of a consumer when they know uh, the impact this food is going to have on their body. I, I don't think that's, that's a place that many food companies want to go unless their headline really is healthy food. Um, but when people see where their food came from, they feel better about eating it. And when they see how the food's going to affect their body, they're they're more excited to, to keep a certain uh, lifestyle in check. Yeah, I, I think it's fascinating, honestly, because there's such a deep human emotional connection to food. It's, I mean, it's, it's the one thing that gives you life. And without it, uh, you, you will die. But what that does is it, it brings people's attention to food on like a deeper level of understanding. I don't know too many people that question what's in their prescription drugs, but I know a lot of people that are going to question what went into that apple that they ate. I agree. Life itself is built by food, and uh, there there are going to be some really tremendous strides in getting that nutritional information beyond that that food pyramid that we have all seen in grade school. Um, and we're learning so much about how every time you eat food, the microbial communities within your gut is changing every single time. And, and there's going to be a lot of artwork there. How do we go beyond probiotics? How do we eat a certain diet that's going to promote long-term health uh, in a way that we haven't seen before? And, you know, we're already sort of seeing that Take place now. Yeah, and, and there's entire billion-dollar industries focused on this kind of thing uh, with nutritional supplements, with eating that, eating this, doing this exercise. All of this is affecting the bacteria inside our body. So could you give us a, a what's, what's the moral of the day? What is the lesson that we're learning from all of this? Wrap it all up for us. I guess the moral of the story here today is that there are scientists out there trying to grab the reins and steer microorganisms in, in, the, in the direction of the public good. And uh, really grasping that while there are bad bacteria out there, there are so many good bacteria out there that can be uh, you know, manipulated in a way that's favorable for human health um, and also enjoyable for foods that we find to be delicious. Uh, but those bad bacteria are out there, the, the viruses that we can't see, um, you know, we can't just throw them all into one category as, as, as germs, even though that's a, a positive mindset to have as a young person, uh, trying to understand the good that, that we can learn from microorganisms is, uh, really pushing science forward. Well, that is wonderful. Thank you so much for all of that information. Uh, we're looking at the good, we're looking at the bad, and more importantly, we're looking at them. We are, and I, and I really do love it. You said that we're we're surveillance on a, a bacteria. We are trying to watch them, see what they're doing, how they grow, what they're doing in our environment, and that's uh, that's so interesting. We are watching this almost invisible entity that is having such a ridiculously profound effect on our every single day life, and it is thanks to people like Michael over here that we are able to keep an eye on them. Yeah, this has been great, Lewis. Thanks for having me. 
For the last 35 minutes and 40 seconds, we had a conversation with Michael. We talked about spying on bacteria, what's good, what's bad, and what we might see in the future. And he really told us a lot of very interesting things about how we can actually use vibrations to look and draw pictures of bacteria. It's some honestly wild stuff. But true to form, this show is called We Know Some Stuff. And as I said at the beginning, we don't know everything, which is why, to be honest to our title, I have to end the show with a little bit of fact check. You know, clarify a few things that we may have not known at the time. And since our ultimate goal here is to communicate science clearly, I think it would be useful to maybe try to explain this ramen thing a little bit differently. When you shine a light on these bacteria, they are going to take a little bit of that energy, but they also have to give off the rest of that energy. They can't keep that energy on them forever. And a little portion of this energy is something that we call Rayleigh scattering. And true to that, it really is a very small amount. So Michael described how they were using different things like uh, gold nanoparticles in order to make this signal so much larger. And this signal is in its own way kind of like a vibration. So we're able to collect these vibrations and be able to say exactly where that bacteria is at that given time and what it looks like based on how we see the vibrations. Now if that piqued your interest and you want to learn a little bit more about ramen, you can go online and search R-A-M-A-N. And if that didn't pique your interest, you can go online and search R-A-M-E-N and look at pictures of noodles instead. Thanks for listening to We Know Some Stuff.